It is very important who you choose to be in your garage band. Let me tell you a story. When I was a teenager, my friend and I were starting a band and we needed a drummer. And there was this kid in our church whose name was Josh and he said that he played drums. So we said, good. Well, we arranged the time to go over to his house for a jam session to see if it was a good fit. When we got there, his garage door was open, but he wasn't there. So my friend Matt and I, we start unloading our gear, setting up our guitars and our amplifiers and still no Josh. So Matt, who is not a drummer, he goes and he gets on the drum set and he starts playing. When Josh heard and finally comes out into his garage, the first thing he said was, whoa, you're way better than me. And I thought, this is not a good sign. And it turns out Josh was right. Josh barely knew how to play the drums. So for the rest of the afternoon, Matt and I jammed together while Josh rode his skateboard out in the driveway. And you might have guessed there was no second jam session at Josh's house. It's also very important who you choose to be on your missions team. When I was in graduate school, Lisa and I were occasionally invited over for dinner by young married couples who were planning on going into foreign missionary work. But what we didn't realize at the time with the was that the purpose of these dinners was to find out if Lisa and I would be a good fit for their mission team. They were interviewing us, but we didn't know it. And we pretty much failed the interview every time because the couple would casually ask us questions like, so what are your plans after grad school? You know, are you thinking maybe about going overseas and doing missionary work? And we would say, uh, not really. We want to do local church ministry, maybe on the West Coast. There's plenty of people over there who need to know Jesus, so that's what we want to do. And the young couple would exchange a glance that said, uh, this is not a good sign. And you might have guessed there was no second dinner invitation. So the moral of these stories is we can't afford to waste time on people who will not be useful in our goals and plans. If someone's not pulling their weight or is not cut out for the task or if they blow their first impression, we can't possibly afford the risk of giving them a second chance. They might be better suited to partner with someone else or some other venture or project, but not mine. There's too much at stake here. I don't know if that's the best advice. Maybe there's some wisdom in this. Choosing wisely is important after all, but we have to admit that this philosophy is not just a little self-serving. It's an attempt to take the easy road. It's easier to write people off than to give them a second chance or invest in the relationship in meaningful ways. It's an attitude that kind of gives a lot of credit to my ability to judge people and their worthiness, whether or not they're allowed to be involved with me. It's a power move when you're the one that's making the cut, but it's not such a great feeling when you're on the receiving end of it. Maybe you've been written off or eliminated from a relationship or an opportunity based on a bad first impression or circumstances that may have been outside of your control. It's not a good feeling. But we need to remember there's a higher standard for relationships in the kingdom of God. It's a standard that gives people more than just one chance. And we see this in the life of Jesus. Just think for a minute about all the people that he specifically calls to be his followers. They, honestly, there were a bunch of screw-ups. None of them would have been chosen to be on anyone's mission team back when they were in grad school. I've asked some of our children from the church to study up on these apostles and give us a report showing what a bunch of knuckleheads they were. So, please, enjoy. Peter has a lot of problems. He fell asleep when Jesus asked him to pray. Twice! He said he didn't know who Jesus was. Three times! After Jesus told him he would. Earlier that day, Peter was so ridiculous, he told Jesus his 
actually understandable. If Jesus says to you, get behind me, Satan, you really messed up. What a knucklehead. Judas is the worst. First of all, he complained when Mary poured perfume on Jesus' feet. He said they could have sold it for money for the poor. Oh, please. He just wanted to keep stealing money from the purse. He should not be in charge of the money. And he betrayed Jesus. The priests didn't even ask him. He offered just for 30 coins. What a knucklehead. When Jesus said he was going to be the king of the world, two of his disciples asked to be his right and left-hand men. They started up a big argument with the other disciples for no reason. It wasn't even going to happen. They totally missed the point of what Jesus was teaching them. Also, Jesus loved children, but the disciples scolded the parents for letting their kids disturb Jesus. Later, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times. Peter promised he wouldn't, but he did after promising. What knuckleheads. Another unlikely draft pick for Jesus was the Apostle Paul. We know him best from his church planting and the letters that he wrote in the New Testament, but listen to this reputation that he had before he became a Christian, when his name was still Saul. This is from uh, Acts chapter 7, where a Christian named Stephen was speaking to the Jewish leaders about the resurrected Jesus, and they were not happy about it. This is what it says. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is. And then in Acts chapter 9, it says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, or Christians in other words, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. It's a wonder Paul became a Christian at all, let alone the influential leader that he became. And it seems that he followed the same criteria, or maybe lack of criteria, that Jesus did in who he chose to work with. Think about some of Paul's choices. Timothy. Timothy was too young. Paul even writes to Timothy and says, don't let people look down on you because you're young. But even though he was young, Timothy still traveled with Paul and helped plant and oversee churches in Ephesus. What about Phoebe? She was too female by first century standards, and yet she's the one who is entrusted to read and exposit Paul's letter to the churches in Rome. Remember John Mark? This guy was a flake. He was unreliable. He's on a missionary journey with Paul, and he just up and bails. No explanation. No two weeks notice. But Paul indicates in his later letters that the relationship had been restored, and John Mark was working with Paul again when he was in Rome. And another unlikely draft pick for Paul was Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy slave owner, and perhaps the reason that his slave Onesimus ran away in the first place was that Philemon was mistreating him, or at least allowing him to be mistreated. And yet Paul still teaches Philemon the faith and raises him up to be a house church leader. I read a story one time that when Josh Holloway was auditioning for the role of Sawyer on the hit TV show Lost, he actually blew the audition. He was doing the audition and he forgot one of his lines and was frustrated with himself, so he kicks a chair and kind of loses, loses his temper. And the directors think, hey, we kind of like this guy. He's, he's intense. And they ended up hiring him for the part, even though he messed up, and they even changed the character somewhat to match his personality. Well, it almost seems like that's what Jesus and Paul were doing when they were picking their teammates. Not looking for who was perfect, but just looking for someone with something that they could work with. 
These examples show us that maybe we should reconsider our policy of not wasting time with useless people who blow the audition. In between the flubbed first impression and the second chance that sometimes people get, there's this gateway of forgiveness, reconciliation, and welcome, for which we are the gatekeepers. You actually get to decide who passes through the gate and gets a second chance with you and who doesn't. You get to control who goes from useless to useful. But the truth is, we don't always want to forgive or make time for that awkward reconciliation process, or, or we sometimes just don't care whether or not someone is welcomed back into our lives. And we need a little bit of a nudge. Sometimes it takes an advocate, a person who has more influence in your life than the person you're disregarding. It takes them coming alongside you and saying, listen, listen, I know this is not what you want to do. You, know, you don't want to let this person back in, but it's something that you need to do. And Paul is that advocate for Onesimus. Listen to what he says. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason that he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but Onesimus's name literally means useful. It was actually a pretty common slave name at the time. And when you know this, it, it helps you understand a little bit Paul's wording about Onesimus being formerly useless to you, but now he's useful both to you and to me. Paul is saying, I know that he didn't live up to his name. Useful? I mean, this guy ran away. He might even have stolen from you on his way out. But in the kingdom of God, you and I were both formerly useless. Remember Philemon? I was a persecutor of the church. You were a slave-owning, ladder-climbing Roman elite. But look at us now. Partners in the gospel. We're church leaders and we're brothers in Christ. Shouldn't we extend that same chance at redemption to Onesimus? You see, Paul is Onesimus' advocate. And as Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, he shares with his disciples about another advocate that he's going to send after his death and resurrection. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What Paul says to Philemon are the words of the Advocate, with a capital A. This is God's Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. And it's the same Advocate that speaks the same words to us today. It's that nagging sense of unrest when we're not reconciled with our brothers and sisters. It's what makes us lose sleep when we realize that we welcome some people, but not others. 
We welcome certain kinds of people, but not others. And it's that hard to forgive person in your life that you picture when you try to imagine Onesimus' face. Paul is saying something we need to not only overhear, but we also need to realize it applies to us just as much as it does to Philemon. If you'd forgive me, then you need to forgive him. If you'd welcome me, then please welcome him. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance and the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he goes on to say that the opposite is true. Whatever you didn't do for the Onesimuses in your life, you didn't do for me. And the consequences of these choices are pretty dire. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When we feel like Philemon and we want to say, I don't want this useless person in my band. I don't want this useless person on my missions team. We need to hear the words of Paul saying, welcome him as you would welcome me. And the words of Jesus saying, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So in this series, we've talked a lot about what happened leading up to Paul writing this letter to Philemon. And we've studied what Paul tells Philemon he should do, but we haven't said anything so far about what actually happened after the letter was received. And you might be wondering, did Philemon do what Paul suggested that he should do? Was Onesimus welcomed back into the household and treated like a brother? We don't really know, but I think that there's evidence that Onesimus was welcomed back. One is the, the fact that this letter was held onto by the early church, that it survived the process of what became scripture and what didn't, and the fact that it's in our hands today. That's a good sign that Philemon responded positively to this message. I mean, if Philemon just read the letter and crumpled it up and then put Onesimus back into some shackles, then it, the letter might not have been as carefully preserved as it has been. So that's one piece of evidence that the message was heeded. Another piece of evidence is that 50 years after this letter was received, there is a bishop in Ephesus whose name was Onesimus. And we might wonder, is this the same Onesimus from Philemon's household? Some scholars think, eh, maybe it could have been. Other scholars think, no, nah, probably not likely. But like we said earlier, Onesimus was a common slave name. So whether it was our Onesimus or another Onesimus, it's still evidence for a shift in how slaves were treated. And I think that that can give us hope. Hope that the words of this letter are true and powerful and can break us out of our unforgiving tendencies and usher us into a new way of living that frees us and those we have wronged and those who have wronged us to become family in the body of Christ.
My guess is there's an action step in this message for all of us. Maybe like Philemon, you need to give someone a second chance. Maybe like Onesimus, you need to return to the scene of the crime, so to speak, and seek forgiveness from someone. Or maybe like Paul, you need to be that advocate for someone who needs to forgive or needs to be forgiven. My prayer this week is that God will increase our courage and trust and allow us to experience the joy of reconciliation.